Your Excellency, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> my name is David Cadman. It has been my great pleasure on more than one occasion to introduce to a Temenos audience Professor Suhail Bushrui, my brother. Absolutely. Indeed, um, <clears throat> in recent years, Suhail and I have come to work together on a number of projects and publications, not least the forthcoming publication of a collection of the speeches and articles of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, entitled The Prince Speaks, which is to be published by the University of Maryland in both English and in Arabic. And also a project, details of which are on the table here, you might like to pick this up, which is the publication of an essay by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales entitled Religion, the Ties that Bind. I've obviously just come into some kind of <laughs> new dimension. Um, which launch, launches a, a, a series of papers that Suhail and I will co-edit of the University of Maryland under the working title of A Clash of Civilizations, a United Nations initiative, uh, The Alliance of Civilizations. And the essay by His Royal Highness is also on the table for those that would like a copy. Professor Bushrui is, of course, uh, a major authority on Arabic and Lebanese literature, and of course, the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. He is currently professor at the University of Maryland in America and a fellow of the Temenos Academy here in London. He is the author of numerous books and articles on Arabic, Anglo-English, Anglo-Irish, I'm sorry, and English literature, and forthcoming, <coughs> and I think some of these are on the table, is his, one of his latest publications, The Essential Gibran. I'm not quite sure when that is being published, Suhail. Is that any moment now? Uh, it, the publisher is October. 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 Very good. See, hot off the press. Now, and, and finally, I, I, I should mention that apart from all this extraordinary work on literature is Suhail's work on peace. He holds the University of Maryland's Baha'i Chair for World Peace and was recently awarded the prestigious Juliet Hollister Award for promoting greater understanding and religious of, of religious diversity and spiritual values, a prize that he shares with Nelson Mandela. Now, much of this will be well known to many of you because you know this man. But less well known, perhaps, will be the way that our founder, 
the late Kathleen Rain used to talk of Suhail. She once wrote of their first meeting, and this is what she said. She said, I well remember our first meeting at dinner with Colin Smythe when our eyes met. You were at the other end of the table and a recognition passed between us which has since become so wonderful, a gift of heaven. You are always somehow miraculously there when you are most needed. And in again and again you have given me the support and encouragement of your sacred fire. Now, Kathleen was a woman who guarded her compliments, and that makes that description of Suhail all the more wonderful. Um, now, we have Sir Nicholas Pearson here, who chairs the Temenos board, or council, I think we call herself. So the next little quotation is for, for you, really, Nicholas. In one of her letters, she referred to Su Suhail as a guardian and torchbearer of the sacred fire. And she once shared with him her vision for the future of the Temenos Academy. This is what she said in this letter. The words of St. Matthew that I still hear in my father's voice are, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. These things, she said, are the material necessities of life. And I have never found that the miraculous has failed. Though one can never know where it may come from. I hope my successors hold fast to that principle, but fear that there may be too much talk of fundraising <laughs> before we plan the programs, which is altogether wrong. Plan the programs and then consider how to fund them. I do not need, she said, to tell you, Suhail, that this never fails. Now, for those of us mere mortals that try to carry on her work, this command, and a command indeed it would have been, is something of a challenge. Um, and whenever I light the candle at the beginning of a lecture such as this, I feel Kathleen's watchful and oft-times somewhat critical eye upon me. But Kathleen was a great admirer of the work of Khalil Gibran the subject of our lecture tonight. She held him in high esteem, <clears throat> writing once to Sir Hale about a, a visit to his homeland, the Lebanon. She said this, and some may feel that this still rings true. I shall never forget, she says, that dramatic vision to war-torn Beirut, which was for me an insight into civil war and hatred and how it has destroyed your beautiful and cultured and prosperous country beyond recovery, perhaps. The situation just over the border in Israel gives little cause for hope, and the hate goes on. In that context, the presence of the prophetic voice of that beautiful poet, Kahil Gibran, is one of those things that makes one believe that such men are sent with a task to perform on earth that requires their birth at a certain place at a certain time. All of us, perhaps. But then, she adds, the last betrayal would be to despair. This evening, despair we will not, for we are gathered here to hear what it is that 
Professor Bushrail has to say about the endearing legacy of Cahil Gibran. I welcome you, Suhail, on behalf of the Academy and on behalf of the British Lebanese Association. And I invite you to speak to us, aided and abetted by the voice of Tom Durham. I really uh, <clears throat> never correct my distinguished and learned friend, uh, David Cadman, but I must, just to set the record right, I retired from the Baha'i Chair for World Peace on the 31st of December 2005. And my uh, position now is uh, the director and professor of Khalil Gibran at the University of Maryland. We are uh, founding a chair in his name, hopefully by the end of this year. So just for the record, I'm not here on that. Thank you, David, very much. Uh, Your Excellency, thank you for being here. Uh, I know that His Excellency, ever since we've started the lectures here in Temenus Academy, has been an ardent supporter of everything I have done, at least. I stand in his debt, and I know that tonight he had another engagement, and he decided to honor me beyond words to divide his time between here and his next. So I plead with him, please, sir, do leave whatever is necessary. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Sir Nicholas Pearson, Sir David Myers, my two hosts, I'm greatly honored to be here. I have also, I don't know who to mention, but I have the members of the Khalid Gibran International Advisory Board here, and I shan't name anybody because if I forget somebody, I'll never sleep tonight. I am delighted that they are here. I'm delighted that the publisher of this forthcoming book, Mr. Nuveen Dosta, who has published uh, most of my books on Gibran, is here with us tonight, and also Colin Smythe, who has published most of my Irish work, because I have another side to me that is an Irishness to my character, uh, in addition to the Arabness of my character. Uh, and I am really delighted to speak about a great Arab poet. I know we have a bad press, but I can tell you, I'm really honored to speak on behalf, not only of Gibran in Lebanon, but the entire Arab world, a voice that is rarely heard. First of all, I just want to pay tribute to, I think it's the first time that I lecture here without Kathleen being present. I wrote a piece that I sent to <coughs> Temenas when she passed away. It started by saying, 
the candle is still lit. Catherine's spirit is with us. I feel she is present here tonight because the kind of work we do is the work of the spirit. The spirit never dies. There's a marvelous verse in the Quran. They ask you about the soul and the spirit. Answer and say, only God is aware of what it is. And it's very true. This mysterious, enigmatic, wonderful thing we call the soul or the spirit. And I don't want to go into the philosophical dis distinction between soul and spirit. This is only for those who want to live in words and end in words. When we talk about the spirit, we talk about love. And I think if I were to summarize Catherine, this would be something I would quote in her honor. It is by an ordinary, simple man. It's a prayer. It's neither Christian, nor Jewish, nor Muslim, nor Baha'i, nor, it's just a prayer. O oh God, who has revealed to us that of all the virtues, love for us most clearly describe thy infinite nature. And that when we selflessly love, we approach most nearly to thy presence. Grant to us, therefore, this, the supreme virtue, for thou hast shown us that without it, resistance hardens into pride, peace chills to cold-heartedness, and even humility sinks to despair. But enkindled by loving-kindness, all these virtues become alive, bearing us up into thy presence, where alone our hearts may rest. The poem is by Gerald Hurd. And it is in a book that was published several years ago entitled The 100 Names of God. I wanted to read this in honor of Kathleen because it seems to bring her to us this infinite capacity for love of the whole world. My book, The Essential Gibran, is therefore dedicated into the memory of Kathleen Rain. This is the least I can do to honor her. It's, uh, you want to render somebody immortal, put them on, in the page of a book. The book, Survive Us All. <clears throat> Let me start with one sentence in Arabic. لقد اجتمعنا هنا لا لنمجد إنسانا مات بل لنتمجد بإنسان حي. We have come together on this day not to glorify a dead man, but rather to be glorified in a living one. From Mikhail Naimi Khalil Gibran, a biography, and Gibran himself, the Garden of the Prophet. I shall live beyond death, and I shall sing in your ears, 
even after the vast sea wave carries me back to the vast sea depth. I shall sit at your board, though without a body, and I shall go with you to your fields, a spirit invisible. I shall come to you at your fireside, a guest unseen. Death changes nothing but the masks that cover our faces. The woodsman shall still be a woodsman, the plowman a plowman, and he who sang his song to the wind shall sing it also to the moving spheres. <clears throat> this year marks the 75th anniversary of the passing of Khalil Gibran, who died in 1931 at the tragically early age of 48. Few writers are in a position to speak as directly and resonantly to our times as Gibran was. A man of broad human sympathy for all creation, he held a passionate belief in the unity of humankind. His message of peace and reconciliation is more timely and more sorely needed than ever as relations between Christian, Muslim, and Jew, between East and West, become ever more pressing matters of concern. 23 years after the convulsion that was World War II, Aurulio Pace founded the Club of Rome, which defined what it saw as the crucial problems facing humanity and the planet, and termed it the world problematique. Specifically, the world problematique signifies the complex web of interdependent problems, political, economic, technological, environmental, psychological, and cultural, facing life on this planet. To its credit, the, the prestigious Club of Rome was one of the first global think tanks to call attention to issues of sustainability and holistic thinking before such concepts became buzzwords of the day. What the Club of Rome defined on secular premises as the global or world problematique was, in a sense, what the great Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran had already been aware of decades earlier on spiritual premises. That is, for Gibran, the challenges that face the future of human race and life on this planet not only necessitate a <clears throat> global, holistic, and interdisciplinary approach, but require, first and foremost, a spiritual revolution and a concomitant shift in human consciousness. Gibran's English and Arabic prose and poetry represent, in fact, an anguished cry to humanity to realign its lost balance with nature, to establish a universal code of human rights, to emancipate women, to build bridges of understanding between cultures and religions, to lessen the gap between the rich and the poor, and to curb all forms of exclusivism, whether ethnic, nationalistic, or religious, in the recognition of one common humanity and a shared spiritual heritage. In assessing 
the prescience of Khalil Gibran and his relevance today. It is useful to examine the Club of Rome's essential mission. In addition to identifying the world's problems and researching alternative solutions, the Club of Rome defines its mission as the communication of such problems to the most important public and private decision makers, as well as to the general public. As far as the general public is concerned, Khalil Gibran fulfilled that aim of the Club of Rome in a way that no other organization or individual has been able to achieve. He communicated to millions across the globe a culture of peace and inclusion. His most famous work, The Prophet, has been second only to the Bible in copies sold in America. Gibran's words became the life breath of an American generation that had lost the sense of connection with the sacred through established religious, religions and was engulfed in a crisis of conscience during the, Gulf, the, the Vietnam War. But Gibran's message was never restricted to that American generation. It was also a message for humanity at large. The core of that message, however, was a serious prescription for personal transformation, essentially spiritual in nature, demanding on the part of each individual profound changes in both thought and action, resulting in a unity of vision and ethic. The prescription was practical as much as it was idealistic. In fact, Jimran championed in the Prophet the interdependence of both reason and passion, the mind and the spirit. Let your soul exalt your reason to the height of passion that it may <coughs> sing. And let it direct your passion with reason, that your passion may live through its own daily resurrection and like the phoenix rise above its own ashes. Many of Gibran's proposals, simple as they may seem, are practical and implementable. Take, for example, this simple advice. My brothers, seek counsel of one another, for therein lies the way out of error and futile repentance. The wisdom of the many is your shield against tyranny. For when we turn to one another for counsel, we reduce the number of our enemies. Negotiation, consultation, and dialogue are the very foundation of conflict resolution in today's world and must be conducted at every level, whether individual, national, or international. Another example is Gibran's recognition of the necessity for commercial activity in order for human beings to earn a living, distribute the fruits of their labors, and provide for their families. But in place of an ethic of global capitalism, he proposes a more equitable and humane approach which leaves no one excluded or deprived. Thus, his proposal seems to identify what globalization today 
in material terms, needs to achieve in order to succeed in creating a unified world market in harmony and peace. And before you leave the marketplace, see that no one has gone his way with empty hands. For the master spirit of the earth shall not sleep peacefully upon the wind till the needs of the least of you are satisfied. Till the needs of the least of you are satisfied. While some have dismissed his impact, and with it the spiritual and cultural dimension of peace building, Gibran has in fact been nothing less than a catalyst for change in human consciousness and a bridge between cultures and religions. It is therefore fitting that this commemoration of his life and achievements is dedicated to the British poet Kathleen Rain, whose unique vision equipped her to recognize his true worth at a time when his reputation had not yet developed as it deserved. The living legacy of Gibran is, in fact, now more apparent than ever in the pressing need for increased cultural exchange between the West and the Arab world. To be sure, Gibran, on behalf of both the East and the West, functioned as a cultural ambassador, bringing to each the wisdom of the other. The exigencies of our time demand not only mutual understanding and generosity of spirit, but a critical evaluation and constant awareness of our prejudices. When unexamined, these beliefs may possess the destructive potential of dogma to divide and alienate the peoples of the world. Gibran was equally unsparing and impartial in his condemnation of all these destructive forces, no matter what the belief system of those advocating their use. Early in his writings, Gibran emphasized that the area of greatest import for our present age is the need to develop the consciousness of the oneness of the humanity and the essential oneness of all religions. Really, not oneness as uniformity, but unity in diversity. This became the central theme of Gibran's message, which he expressed in the simplest and most immediate way in words that are unequivocal and sincere. You are my brother, and I love you. I love you when you prostrate yourself in your mosque and kneel in your church and pray in your synagogue. You and I are sons of one faith, the spirit. This reminds me of the great poet, Arab poet, who was called the Sheikh Al-Akbar, Muhyiddin ibn Arabi. The lines, لقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة فمرعا لغزلان ودير لرهبان وبيت لأوثان وكعبة طائف وألواح طورات ومصحف قرآن أدين بدين الحب أنا توجهت ركائبه فالحب ديني وإيماني My heart is capable of every form, a pasture for gazelles a monastery for monks. I hold in my heart the idol. He came to terms even with the most bitter enemy, the idol, and those who come to visit the Kaaba. 
in my heart I hold the Jewish Torah and the Holy Quran. My religion and faith is love. Wherever it beckons me, I follow. For those of you who see the television programs and listen to, as a matter of fact, in Arabic literature, we have such an enormous fund of such humanity that will surprise you. I consider it my duty now, I'm 77, for as long as I'm alive, to see that this message reaches my dear, dear friends and brothers in the West. Early in his writings, as I said, Gibran had this concept of the unity. These lines that were read by my very distinguished and able colleague, these lines encapsulate Gibran's strongest conviction, which inspired him to his greatest achievement, the leadership of a spiritual revolution which took place in America, the core of the materialistic, market-oriented culture of the West. Like Wordsworth, Gibran might have exclaimed, The world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. His sense of exile in Boston and New York sharpened his awareness of the need for an alternative to the cultural chauvinism which was a relic of the colonial past, continued to taint extreme right and left-wing ideologies equally, as did the First World War, with its brutal demonstration of the consequences of divisive and exclusive ideologies. Written five years after the First World War ended, the prophet offers a universal message of spiritual healing for a torn and embittered world rent apart by the conflict not only between peoples but between faith and reason, between spiritual values and the demands of modern technology and scientific progress. Gibran had drawn from the Arabic works of Ibn al-Arabi whom I quoted, Ibn al-Farid and al-Ghazali the concept of the unity of being, and with it a deeper vision of the nature of the universe. He was greatly inspired by the tradition of learning and spirituality in the culture of the Arab world, which flourished at the crossroads of history. He found it to be a rich source of perennial philosophy, expressed through a diverse range of literature, poetry, both religious and secular. This combination practical and spiritual wisdom, known in Arabic literature as al-hikmatul khalidah, the eternal wisdom, nourished his imagination from an early age. It was this tradition that taught him that within the unity of man and nature itself, there could be no place for internal strife and division at the spiritual level. And thus Gibran protested against the warning, warring factions and conflicting interests which he saw as a threat to the light of unity. If we were to do away with the non-essentials of the various religions, Gibran once proposed, we would find ourselves united and enjoying one great faith and religion, abounding in brotherhood. 
and of that mysterious source of all faith, God, he dared to write. A God who is good knows of no segregations amongst words or names. And were a God to deny his blessing to those who pursue a different path to eternity, then there is no human who should offer worship to that God. For him, there could be no division or conflict within the Supreme Being, whom he saw as a perfect blend and a synthesis of the male and female principles, combining the best of both. Most religions speak of God in the masculine gender. To me, he is as much a mother as he is a father. He is both the father and the mother in one, and woman is the godmother. The godfather may be reached through the heart only, through love. And love is that holy wine which the gods distill from their hearts and pour into the hearts of men. Those only tasted pure and divine, whose hearts have been cleansed of all the animal lusts. For clean hearts to be drunk with love is to be drunk with God. Those, on the other hand, who drink it mixed with the wines of earthly passions taste but the orgies of devils in hell. Although brought up a Maronite Christian, Gibran, as an Arab, was greatly influenced not only by his own religion, but also by the great teachings of Islam and its civilization, and especially by the mysticism of the Sufis. A firm believer in the teachings of the Gospels, Gibran found particular inspiration in the figure of Christ himself, eventually producing his own unique and powerful portrait of the Messiah in Jesus the Son of Man, which was published three years before his death. Christ is also one of the models for al-Mustafa in the Prophet, and the form of the latter's teachings bear some comparison to the Sermon of the Mount in its eloquent guidance for humanity. What is unmistakable in the Prophet is the attempt at bringing together the essential teachings of Sufi Islam and those of the Gospel as taught by Jesus. But the Prophet is also a unifier of all religious truth. It exemplifies on an all-encompassing spiritual reality which we find beautifully expressed in the Sermon on Religion. And an old priest said, Speak to us of religion. And he said, Have I spoken this day of aught else? Is not religion all deeds and all reflection, and that which is neither deed nor reflection, but a wonder and a surprise ever springing in the soul, even while the hands hew the stone or tend the loom. Who can separate his faith from his actions or his belief from his occupations? Who can spread his hours before him saying, this for God and this for myself, this for my soul and this other for my body? All your hours are wings that beat through space from self to self. He who wears his morality but as his best garment were better naked. The wind and the sun will tear no holes in his skin. And he who defines his conduct by ethics imprisons his songbird in a cage. 
The freest song comes not through bars and wires. And he to whom worshipping is a window to open but also to shut has not yet visited the house of his soul whose windows are open from dawn to dawn. Your daily life is your temple and your religion. Whenever you enter into it, take with you your all. Take the plough and the forge and the mallet and the lute, the things you have fashioned in necessity or for delight. For in reverie, you cannot rise above your achievements nor fall lower than your failures. And take with you all men, for in adoration you cannot fly higher than their hopes, nor humble yourself lower than their despair. And if you would know God, be not therefore a solver of riddles. Rather look about you, and you shall see him playing with your children. And look into space, you shall see him walking in the cloud, outstretching his arms in the lightning and descending in rain. You shall see him smiling in flowers, then rising and waving his hands in trees. His attempt at a reconciliation between Islam and Christianity, and according to the prophet, the reconciliation of all the religious traditions of the world, makes him a forerunner of an interfaith movement which was yet unborn. Ecumenical in every sense of the word, his statements with regard to faith, religion, and acceptance of the other. Leave us in no doubt as to what his purpose was when he wrote an open letter addressed to all Muslims, him being a Christian, entitled to the Muslims from a Christian poet, he announced. I am a Christian and I am proud to be one. I also love the Arabian prophet and exalt his name. I cherish, I cherish the glory of Islam and fear its passing. I honor the Quran, but I condemn those who use it as a means to thwart the endeavors of Muslims. I also deride those who use the Bible as a means to enslave Christians. O Muslims, take my word. I am a Christian who has made a home for Jesus in one part of my being and for Muhammad in another. Uh, this passage moves me to tears, really. Gibran's uh, ardent belief in the power and efficacy of an all-embracing unity did not allow him to blur the distinctions between male and female, body and soul, reason and faith, in an attempt to preach a facile message of superficial unity or to deny unmistakable distinctions. He sought instead to reconcile all opposites, create harmony, and recognize the complementary values of each entity and to enable, in the Quaker phrase, that of God in every man to be revealed through the inner light that guides each created being. In doing so, he emphasized the essential unity which exists in the true interpretation of the tenets of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam 
respect for creation, care for the vulnerable, and honor to God. Elements which transcend the differences of doctrine and practice. He further explained the all-encompassing unity permeating the whole of creation in Iram Dhat al-Imad, his Sufi play, when Amin al-Alawiyah reveals these words. All things in this creation exist within you, and all things in you exist in creation. There is no border between you and the closest things, and there is no distance between you and the farthest things, and all things, from the lowest to the loftiest, from the smallest to the greatest, are within you as equal things. In one atom are found all the components of the earth. In one motion of the mind are found the motions of all the laws of existence. In one drop of water are found the secrets of all the endless oceans. In one aspect, you, are found all the aspects of existence. Such a vision of unity had permeated all he had done and had finally found this vision fully manifested in the person and teachings of Abdul Baha, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. In 1912, Abdul Baha was conducting a speaking tour across North America. And that same year, Gibran had the opportunity to meet him in New York City. The poet was deeply impressed by Abdul Baha's teachings and bearing. And in many ways, according to Gibran, he provided the template for Gibran's portrayal of Jesus in Jesus the Son of Man. Gibran said of Abdul Baha, whose portrait he also sketched, for the first time I saw some noble form enough to be a receptacle for the Holy Spirit. Regardless of one's opinions of Khalil Gibran's achievement, the fact remains that he was no easy sentimentalist, unaware of the harsh realities of contemporary life. In his zeal to foster awareness of the urgent moral questions facing mankind, his approach was sometimes uncomfortably close to preaching for those who felt awkward in the presence of such fervor and conviction. It was the direct opposite of Yeats's despairing cry. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. To this, Gibran, an ardent admirer of Yeats, could not fail to agree. Faced with the grimness and corruption of urban America, after a childhood spent in the fertile and beautiful countryside around his birthplace, Bishri, Gibran responded in a way very close to the reaction of another poet, Federico Garcia Lorca whose poeta in Nova, New York, 1929-30, composed just a few years after the prophet, similarly mirrors the sense of displacement, disorientation, and revulsion experienced by a sensitive young man transplanted from a lovely and familiar landscape, in Lorca's case, Granada, with its wealth of local tradition in both music and poetry, to the squalor, to the squalor of New York's poorer quarters. Both were also gifted visual artists who experimented with painting and drawing alongside the craft of the written word, and both responded with an artist's vivid eye for color, rhythm, and form to the contrast between their memories and the frequently shocking everyday reality now confronting them. 
Both use their mastery of language to cry out against the humiliation of man by man, the lowliness and alienation of city life, and the insense ugliness, insensate ugliness of an environment shaped by greed and disregard for nature or human life. This parallel response indicates that Gibran was not alone in perceiving the modern metropolis as a place of danger and despair, which urgently required the poet's voice to denounce it and declare the way to a better future. Gibran's own reaction to life in the modern city was expressed in different ways throughout his works. To him, within the city walls, as he put it, we dwell in tombs made for the dead by the living. And by not trusting nature, we continue to live in fear. Nature reaches out to us with welcoming arms and bids us enjoy her beauty. But we dread her silence and rush into the crowded cities there to huddle like sheep fleeing from a ferocious wolf. Gibran then was no vague idealist, peddling palliatives in bland general terms. He did not shrink from taking a full look at the worst in his search for a way to the better, from upholding those whose behavior he regarded as a threat to the possibility of unity, or from pleading fearlessly for tolerance and understanding between warring religions. Listen to us, O liberty. <clears throat> Have compassion on us, O daughter of Athens. Rescue us, O sister of Rome. Save us, O companion of Moses. Come to our aid, O beloved of Muhammad. Teach us, O bride of Jesus. Strengthen our hearts that we may live. Or strengthen the arms of our enemies against us that we may wither, perish, and find peace. These words are taken from the oration of Khalil the heretic in one of Gibran's stories written in Arabic entitled Khalil al-Kafir, an outspoken and defiant refusal to accept any kind of tyranny, whether political or religious. These vibrant utterances occur in a passage where Khalil, no coincidence surely that he shares his creator's name, inveighs against the crimes of those who oppress their fellow mortals, deny them the liberty to which this oration is a hymn. How long shall we endure the mockery of nations? From fetters to fetters our path leads us, and neither do the fetters disappear, nor do we perish. How long shall we remain alive? The passage from which these lines are taken may also seem nationalistic in tone, for Gibran was a true nationalist with a profound loyalty to his people and his land. But that loyalty was superseded by a vaster loyalty to the world of humankind. I yearn towards my land for its beauty, and I love those that dwell thereon for their weariness. But did my people take up the sword, saying it was out of love for their land, and fall upon my neighbor's land and plunder its goods and slay its men and render its children orphans and make its women widows and water its soil with its son's blood and feed to the prowling beast the flesh of its youth? I would hate my land and its people. In fact, Gibran was a universalist and a true citizen of the world. 
His attitude to nationalism, therefore, was one that preceded the whole concept of the creation of a global civil society, as the following passage from his essay entitled The Poet's Voice indicate. I see myself as a stranger in one land and an alien among one people. Yet all the earth is my homeland and the human family is my tribe. I love the place of my birth with some of the love for my land. I love my country with a little of my love for the world, my homeland. I love the world with my all, for it is the pasture land of man, the spirit of divinity on earth. Gibran was a poet who placed his voice at the service of all those unable to speak for themselves in defending human rights, the rights of women, and the earth itself, at a time when the ecology movement was still far in the future. Had he been with us today, he would have been grieved to observe the recent and belated recognition of the terrible consequences of global warming for the earth, its people, and all the species which inhabit it. He would have reminded us that we hold this planet in trust for our children and their children's children, that our time on it is short, but that the outcome of our actions will have its traces for many generations to come. He would have called us to account for our deeds and to protect and cherish the earth as a heritage for posterity. Closely associated with Gibran's reverence for the capacity of women to nurture, nourish, and protect was his lifelong and deep-rooted love of nature. He was unlike any previous Arab poet in regarding nature as an entity with its own life, with spiritual, emotional, and intellectual aspects, rather than a force to be reckoned with. For Gibran, communion with nature was a religious experience, with humanity and nature sustaining each other in perfect symbiosis. According to Gibran, for humankind to exploit and wound the natural world was an act verging on sacrilege. Exiled in America, he was sustained by his memories of Bishari, untouched by those forces which were ravaging the new world. His readings of Blake and Whitman and of the English Romantic poets deepened his conviction of the unity of man and nature, a conviction stemming from his boyhood that he expressed early in life as when nature becomes the teacher of man, humanity his book, and life his school. Trees, and particularly the famous cedars of Lebanon, were especially dear to him, and nature provided him with some of the most memorable images to be found in his writings. At a more basic level, he realized that the interdependence between man and nature necessarily involved sacrifice. But this too, as the chapter on eating and drinking in the prophet makes clear, was a religious act to be accomplished with due reverence. And let your board stand an altar on which the pure and the innocent of the forest and plain are sacrificed for that which is purer and still more innocent in man. This reverence for nature remains an overarching theme in Gibran's work from the early Arabic writings to the posthumously published works written in English. 
من الأجنحة المتكسرة The Broken Wings 1912 he wrote It never leaves the universe at night until it has put the earth to sleep to the song of the sea and the hymn of the birds and brooks. And this earth is the mother of trees and flowers. It produces them, nurses them, and weans them. The trees and flowers become kind mothers of their great fruits and seeds. And the mother, the prototype of all existence, is the eternal spirit full of beauty and love. Much later in his unfinished work, The Garden of the Prophet, Gibran envisages a world in which nature is man's mother and sister. And then Manus, the inquisitive disciple, looked about him, and he saw plants in flower cleaving unto the sycamore tree. And he said, Behold the parasites, master. What say you of them? They are thieves with weary eyelids who steal the light from the steadfast children of the sun and make fair of the sap that runneth into their branches and their leaves. And he answered him, saying, My friend, we are all parasites. We who labor to turn the soil into pulsing life are not above those who receive life directly from the soil without knowing the soil. Shall a mother say to her child, I give you back to the forest which is your greater mother, for you weary me, heart and hand. Or shall the singer rebuke his own song, saying, Return now to the cave of echoes from whence you came, for your voice consumes my breath. And shall the shepherd say to his yearling, I have no pasture whereunto I may lead you, therefore be cut off and become a sacrifice for this cause. Nay, my friend, all these things are answered even before they are asked, and like your dreams, are fulfilled ere you sleep. We live upon one another according to the law, ancient and timeless. Let us live thus in loving kindness. We seek one another in our aloneness, and we walk the road when we have no hearth to sit beside. My friends and my brothers, the wider road is your fellow man. Those plants that live upon the tree draw the milk of the earth in the sweet stillness of night, and the earth in her tranquil dreaming sucks at the breast of the sun. And the sun, even as you and I and all there is, sits in equal honor at the banquet of the prince whose door is always open and whose board is always spread. Manus, my friend, all there is lives always upon all there is, and all there is lives in the faith sureless upon the bounty of the Most High. In expressing these universal truths, this awareness of the indissoluble bond between man and nature, and the dreadful results of a failure to treat nature with reverent care, Gibran once again shows himself to be a man for all time and a writer who reaches out beyond the confines of nationality, custom, and religious institutions to embrace humanity as a whole. Within Gibran's overall concern for the sanctity of human rights, there is one special area in which he was far ahead of his times and his cultural background. 
It would be misleading to label Gibran a feminist in the unduly restrictive sense of the term. His concern encompassed humanity as a whole, but within it, he had a particular care for the rights and the wrongs of one class, whose sufferings he had witnessed at first hand and whose qualities he had had every opportunity to appreciate. As he wrote, God gives to the spirits of both women and men wings to soar aloft into the realms of love and freedom, and a faith which makes us all brothers and sisters equal before the sun. To oppress women was thus a crime against God himself, implying an attempt to thwart his purposes. But this is not new, because Muhyiddin ibn Arabi said it before him, Woman is not only a sweetheart, but she is the light. Now, haq in Arabic is both God and truth. She's the light of, well, depending how you interpret it. All the closest personal, at the, at the closest personal level, Gibran had had extensive experience of the resilience and fortitude of women. His mother, Camilla, had brought the family over to Boston in, in 1895. She suffered and toiled. She was responsible for sending him to school. Outside the immediate family, two more women were to enhance Gibran's admiration and reverence still further. The first was Mary Haskell, the headmistress of Boston Marlborough Street School for Girls, who helped him to study art in Paris and unfailingly helped him and supported him throughout his creative endeavors and times of discouragement. The second of these women was May Ziadi, a Lebanese author writing in Arabic with whom Gibran corresponded for 20 years, although they never met, exchanging ideas on art and literature, as well as on a woman's right to take control of her life and destiny. In letters echoing those between Kafka and the emancipated Prague journalist Milena Jidenska, in a letter written to Maiziad in 1928, Gibran described the central role women had in his life. I am indebted for all that I call I to women. Ever since I was an infant, women opened the windows of my eyes and the doors of my spirit. Had it not been for the woman mother, the woman sister, and the woman friend, I would have been sleeping among those who seek the tranquility of the world with their snoring. These relationships did much to develop Gibran's respect for women and their capabilities still further. And in time, he gained a reputation as an advocate of women's rights. In a headline, oddly and doubtless unconsciously, reminiscent of Aristophanes's Le Sistrata, the American newspaper, The Buffalo Times, reported his views on women in 1914 under the title, Set Womankind Free and There'll Be No War, accompanied by an example of his visual art, The Great Solitude, described as symbolizing the oneness of mankind, that ever-present ideal in Gibran's work. The question to ask at this point is why was it that Gibran's message, which was so clear, 
so immediate, so vital for our times, and expressed in such lyrical, powerful, and persuasive language. Why was it so slow to gain the recognition which it merited so richly? The answer may well be in that very accessibility and the simplicity and directness with which he addresses his readers. Nevertheless, the Penguin Press, in celebration of its 60th anniversary in 1995, named Gibran as one of the most important authors of the 20th century, included him in the anniversary series in honor of those authors. This well-deserved act of homage indicates the growing understanding of his true significance. Few authors can be in the privileged position of having a work of theirs never go out of print from the date of its first publication. This is the case with Gibran's most famous book, The Prophet, first published in 1923. Its simple message on such enduring and universal themes as love, marriage, work, and death were expressed in pithily direct aphorisms that transcended barriers of culture and nationality and made Gibran internationally known. His first work in English, The Madman, was published in 1918. From 1918 onwards, he wrote exclusively in English, a fact that assured him an extensive international audience receptive to his universal message. Academia, alarmed by the popularity of the prophet in the 1960s, associated it with the flower children and dismissed it out of hand. Moreover, in purely literary terms, Gibran was swimming against the current. Nevertheless, poets such as the Irish A.E. George Russell and the American Robert Hillier recognize his unique genius and need for a new critical methodology to evaluate it, drawing from the disparate critical traditions of East and West without being shackled by the prejudices and limitations of either. More recently, two distinguished major British poets have given Gibran's work a stamp of approval and authority as a major contribution to literature written in English. Kathleen Rain and Francis Warner, who's with us here tonight, both came to Beirut in 1983 to help celebrate and honor the 100th anniversary of Gibran's birth. They both brought Gibran's message of hope and reconciliation to, Lebe to a Lebanon torn by conflict and war. Kathleen Rain not only defended Gibran's position but emphasized his place in 20th century literature in the foreword to Khalil Gibran, Man and Poet, a new biography co-authored by Joe Jenkins and myself. She stated, Communism and capitalism alike have believed that mankind could be fed on bread alone. But once again, the prophets of the ever-living spirit have shown that the word of God is the necessary food of the soul. It is as if one mind had spoken through several voices, none more eloquent or beautiful than the lonely voice of the Christian Lebanese Arab Khalil Gibran. Francis Warner, a fine and great poet and playwright himself, breathed a new life into Gibran's studies in Lebanon. When a widely televised lecture, he stated Gibran, that Gibran has come into his own a poet of universal significance for all time. A few years earlier, he immortalized the poet from Bishari in a moving poem entitled For Bishari. If 
In this ancient land of soaring hills and spreading cedars, I have food for tears. It is perhaps that nowhere else so fills the traveller's heart with ease from all his cares. For we have walked with you on your winding streets, seen the sun high on the loveliness I know. Yet throughout all a natural blessing greets with childhood promise everywhere I go. Your valleys, waterfalls and snowy heights, your song of songs, your sadness and your joys bring me strange intuitions that such sights will strengthen life wherever grief destroys. And I believe when hope's flame gutters low, Bishari shows us truths that make hope grow. Thank you, Francis. I I'm finishing, so just relax, just end to it. <laughs> Perhaps Khalil Gibran today has been confirmed as one of the most creative and controversial writers of the 20th century. By the mid-1980s and early 1990s, over 8 million copies of The Prophet had been sold. By all estimates, The Prophet, without doubt, is among the most widely read books of our time, despite first appearing in an age when it was impossible to generate by intensive publicity the kind of sales which modern bestsellers enjoy. Today, Gibran's work is available in more than 45 different languages, including some vernaculars within the one language. This has enabled him to be read and appreciated in places as far apart as Tokyo, Beijing, Delhi, Manila, Nairobi, Rome, Paris, London, and New York. In America, Gibran's achievement as an influential literary figure received dual confirmation in the academic and public spheres. In the 1990s, when the University of Maryland established the Khalil Gibran Chair for Values and Peace under the auspices of the new Khalil Gibran Professorship at the Center for Heritage Resource Studies, while the United States government created a memorial garden in his honor in the heart of Washington, D.C. The first was an institutional decision by a major American university ending years of unwarranted academic reluctance to include Gibran in the curriculum. The second was the result of a bill passed by Congress and the House of Representatives, followed by a special commemoration ceremony in May 1991, over which the then President of the United States of America presided. Gibran must surely be the only immigrant poet ever to have been accorded such academic and national recognition. Many poets, from Horace to Pushkin, have described the imperishable heritage which they were to leave mankind in terms of a lofty monument more enduring than bronze. But Gibran's own words with regard to the timeless quality of the spirit's legacy are closer to the simple vision of the English poet, John Clare. In every language upon earth, on every shore or every sea, I gave my name immortal birth and kept my spirit with the free. These lines truly prefigure and testify to the truth of Khalil Gibran's own prophetic statement. My spirit is to me a companion who comforts me when the days grow heavy upon me 
who consoles me when the afflictions of life multiply. Who is not a companion to his spirit is an enemy to people. And he who sees not in his self a friend dies despairing. For life springs from within a man and comes not from without him. I come to say a word and I shall utter it. Should death take me ere I give voice, the morrow shall utter it. For the morrow leaves not a secret hidden in the book of the infinite. I came to live in the splendor of love and the light of beauty. Behold me then in life. People cannot separate me from my life. Should they put out my eyes, I would listen to the songs of love and the melodies of beauty and gladness. Were they to stop my ears, I would find joy in the caress of the breeze, compounded of beauty's fragrance and the sweet breaths of lovers. And if I am denied the air, I will live with my spirit, for the spirit is the daughter of love and beauty. I came to be for all and in all. That which alone I do today shall be proclaimed before the people in days to come. And what I now say with one tongue, tomorrow will say with many. who love you will not be in the least bit surprised that you have delighted us this evening with your lecture, with your teaching. You presented to us a, a man of enormous depth and variety and surely also a man of acute relevance to the problems which we all face together uh, in the 21st century. We thank you also, Tom, for your voice, which That's is right. always a delight. Um, we shall, those, those who are familiar with Gibran will no doubt, after this talk, feel bound to retrace their steps. And those not so familiar, perhaps, will turn the pages for the first time and have a treasure uh, in front of them. And... You, Suhail, we just hope we'll come back very often. Can, can I just add one small thing at the end? Um, for those of you who are not already on our mailing list, I've... <laughs> have my chairman looking at me. Would you please add your name to the sheets here 
because you are the miracles that Kathleen reminded us of, and we need you enormously. So if you would like to do that, that would be a great Once more, Suhail, so many thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Is there any questions or what? No. We're out of time. Okay, thank you. Well, I just have one last thing to say. I don't know. We, we're talking about the spirits, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but I believe that in the world of the spirits, I hope that Kathy can intercede on our behalf in the higher kingdom, that our work will progress. Thank you. And one more thanks. I don't know whether you know Stephen Overy. He's our indefatigable secretary and uh, really puts every one of us on track. So thank you very much for all the work you've done.